if your faith, which is 2,000 years old, is global and worldwide, and it aligns only with the left wing of the Democratic Party or with the right wing of the Republican Party, then I say something's wrong with your faith. Your faith is too old and it has been preserved through too many cultures for it to stay within one governmental ideology. Dr. John Nunes. Let me first say this. I'm no Joe Rogan, no Jordan Peterson, nor Malcolm Gladwell, nor any other esteemed thought leader in society. I didn't study law, sociology, or any type of political science. But I do, however, have many questions about how the past several years have unfolded, not just simply in the White House, but in our churches and in the hearts of its attendees because of what's happened in the White House. So this is my attempt to present political commentary for those who have been confused, hurt, and at some point rendered hopeless because I was there too. But before we go any further, my name is Chris and you're listening to the Don't Knock It podcast where we address our past decisions, lessons, ways of acting and thinking and put them face to face with the risen Christ revealed to us in the scriptures. However, in this particular episode, since I was raised by immigrant parents who fought tooth and nail to give me and my brothers a solid family foundation as best they could, I will not address previous lessons taught to me per se, but I will seek to address a mentality that has begun rotting the sanctity of the church and has actually been desacralizing the people of God since the first temptation in the garden. That is the sin of what the Bible calls idolatry. More specifically, idolatry in the political realm as citizens of the United States. So before I get into the main topic of the effects on believers that come from idolizing a country or the rights a certain country does or doesn't give you, I think it is absolutely necessary to describe what idolatry is because it is the root issue of any and all sin we struggle with, that we see in others, and that we hope to see ultimately defeated in the end. So at the most basic Fundamental level, idolatry, or the act of worshiping idols, is a violation of the first two of the Ten Commandments, which are commandment number one, I am the Lord your God, you shall not have any other gods before me. And then number two, you shall not make any graven images or idols of me, speaking of God. These two basically place God at the very center of the very foundation of our worship. Anything else that we place above or before him or even try to make like him is a form of idolatry. Some obvious examples of idolatry are praying to Mary or the saints, literally bowing towards Mecca in worship and prayer, reading the Book of Mormon devotionally and for spiritual guidance, and then some not so obvious examples are being unapologetically fixated on your body or its appearance, thinking God acts or thinks a certain way clearly not taught in scripture, the 
excessive use of video games, pornography, masturbation, basically anything that answers the question, what gives me value apart from God himself? Or what can I not live without apart from God himself? This list can actually go on forever. I absolutely love Timothy Keller's quote describing what idolatry is, and I don't think I could have ever described it much clearer than this. He says, an idol is whatever you look at and say in your heart, and, in your heart of hearts, if I have that, then I'll feel my life has meaning. Then I'll know I'll have value. Then I'll feel significant and secure. So an idol or the worship of one is something you declare supreme or a priority above God specifically and what he has already given to you in his word. So according to Timothy Keller's definition, anything or anyone could become an object of worship or an idol if you place significant and supreme value of it over God. You see, God had provided everything that we needed or that Adam and Eve needed. So just to make a brief note of something that just came to mind, a lot of our idolatry comes to the surface when we refuse to trust God at his word and choose to obey and listen to something or someone else or refuse to give something else, give something up. For example, back in the garden and back in Genesis, God had given Adam and Eve everything that they needed before the fall. So let's look back at the text itself. In Genesis 2 verse 9, we read that out of the ground, the Lord God caused to grow every tree that is pleasing to the sight and good for food. The tree of life also in the midst of the garden and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. So not only did God create trees that they could, that they could eat from, but that are also pleasing to the sight. So God literally put tree, a tree or trees in the garden simply for the pleasure of looking at. So, and, then, and then in Genesis 2, verse 16, we read, The Lord God commanded the man, saying, From any tree of the garden you may eat freely, but from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat, for in the day that you eat from it you shall surely die. So God, in his perfect wisdom, not only provided a great deal of resource and delight, but also a restriction and a warning if that restriction was disobeyed. So what does this have to do with idolatry? Adam and Eve were enticed and tempted to not believe God and acted on a false belief that they could become like God. In Genesis 3 verse 4 says, The serpent said to the woman, You surely will not die, for God knows that in the day you eat from it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. So this, this I believe is half of what idolatry means, seeking to be like God in a way he did not instruct us to. We see the second half of idolatry in the next verse, verse six, when the woman saw that the tree was good for food and that it was a delight to the eyes and that the tree was desirable to make one wise, she took from its fruit and ate and she gave also to her husband with her and he ate. So here's what we see here. Didn't we just read that God made trees that were good for food and pleasing to the sight? 
Now Eve sees only the restricted, the restricted tree as good for food and a delight to the eyes. This right here is the, high, is the heart of idolatry. When we make someone else God, whether it's ourselves or something else, and when we take what God has already given us and twist it or ma manipulate it and worship, worship it rather than him. So simply put, not only do they want to be like God, but they wanted to have comprehensive authority over everything in their presence. We become idolaters when we seek to be gods ourselves, where we think we know better, where we think we can make our own decisions apart from submitting to God's guidance of those decisions, when we hold authority over our own destiny, when we value our happiness above and over everyone else's, when we create our own gods after the things that entice us. So things like glory and wealth or to ward off things that we fear, disease, enemies, bad weather. We see that throughout history or to give us things that we need, crops, fertility, rain, survival beyond death. These are just some of the reasons that people built up idols. We, this happens when we exchange the worship of the living creator God who deals with all of these things, addresses all of these things for us according to his own providence and will, for whatever we can construct and put in his place for our own happiness and security. So here's, this is the theme of this episode. We value our security and our rights above what God has called us to value and give up for the sake of following him. This is God, guns, and glory. This is why I wanted to make this particular episode, because there's this weird, alarming marriage, so to speak, between Americans and Christianity. That just because the Declaration of Independence begins with the words, quote, we hold these truths to be self-evident that all men are created equal, that they are endowed by their creator with certain unalienable rights, that among these are life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. Just because the Declaration of Independence begins in this way does not mean that they were given to you or to believers by divine providence on stone tablets. They are not Mosaic law. They are not a new covenant law. So sure, in the grand plan of God under his sovereignty, he allowed for us to have those rights. But this isn't a theocracy where God literally gives us our laws on how to handle our society, our economics, etc., etc. And we are not Old Testament Israel. So here's the main point of this episode. We got to address the idolatry of a nation. The idolatry of the rights we have from said nation and how the idolatry of a country can lead to behaviors such as last year's insurrection of the capital and the divisions being caused inside of churches because of this idolatry. So to address this massive topic, I have my beloved wife with me 
to talk through some of the things that have happened in the last several years to hopefully give some biblical perspective and hope and just open up the conversation for some things. All right, so I have my wonderful wife here who will give us or give us a pers- her perspective on this marriage, so to speak, between being an American and a believer, a Christian. So, honey, the floor is yours. Hey. <laughs> How's it going? Um, yeah, I, I have a lot of thoughts and a lot of background. Um, just struggling with, like, where to start. But, um, yeah, I grew up with my sister in Colorado and my dad had a pickup truck and we listened to country music in it and I guess it started from there because I feel like some of this uh I guess Christian nationalism is in like country music with like I don't know god guns girls and trucks (laughs) Yeah, I remember, like, I I distinctly, like, you mentioning country music, I distinctly remember this this one particular line from the song that says, this is God. No, this is a, what is it? How does it go? This is God's God's country. country. Yeah, Blake Shell. (laughs) Yeah, so, (laughs) so, you mentioned, I didn't mean to cut you off, but, like, you mentioned Christian, Christian nationalism, and for those who don't know what that is, Um, It's essentially uh, when believers or people who claim the name of Christ tie the success of their religion with the success of their nation. And so this isn't just an issue with America. This can be an issue with anyone or any country that holds to that view, that their country's success or downfall is directly tied to um the presence or the absence of believers in that country or in its government all right i want to begin with asking a few questions to kind of give some perspective so um i remember one of the first conversations we had when we started talking is I asked you was like, I asked you about Colin Kaepernick. Um, You know, a few years ago, he uh, got down on one knee and knelt during the duration of the national anthem, like before a football game. And I remember you like I asked you. And yeah, I'll just let you explain like what you felt about it. Like, when you saw that, just to kind of ask you the, the question again, what did you think with being being a believer? What did you think of Colin Kaepernick doing that? Uh, I was seeing through, I don't know if you can call it rose-colored glasses, but just like I was seeing, seeing through a lens that had been given to me um and like 
I tend to agree with a lot of stuff that like my dad says or like both of my parents. Um, and so I kind of saw it the way he saw it and I'm not throwing anybody under the bus because I really felt strongly the same way, but it was just like, oh my gosh, the blatant disrespect, like, you know, like people died for that flag and like, you know, I was just kind of like astounded and, you know, I had a lot of friends, dads who were, you know, boycotting, watching football and, and that, so I kind of took on that, like, yeah, that's disrespectful and that's just kind of what I thought about it and you being the investigator type of personality that you are and the thinker um, prompted me to think. Um, And also um, my friend Lauren, who I was living with at this time, uh, thinks or is like a similar type of personality and kind of thinks outside the box or I guess thinks for herself. Um, Which is usually out of the box. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, Yeah, yeah. And I guess I was given, like, a run for my money, like, kind of, like, what, like, and I don't remember what exactly the question was that you posed to me, like, maybe it was something, like, why do you think he was, like, doing that, or, like, what he was doing that for, and, you know, I was definitely in the stage of trying to impress you, and, like, (laughs) being open to like other thoughts, but it, it made me like really in my heart kind of for the first time be like, wait, he was kneeling for essentially in his mind, the sanctity of human life, Mm -hmm. which I guess was kind of why I was mad about it because I was seeing the sanctity of all the humans who died for the flag, but I was I was like equating the flag almost like on this biblical level of like perfection and like what you should, you know, put your, like, it it should be the hill that you can die on. Yeah. Basically. That's actually like a super, I didn't even think about that. Like you just made a great point where uh, you pointed out the irony where like, the the questions that me and Lauren were like asking you during you know during this time or not maybe not even during that time just like since we started talking um I know that she's challenged you a lot in the ways that you were brought up in the way to in the way of your thinking and so on and so forth and then we with me like bringing up this question of I don't remember the question either I just remember like trying to challenge you and figure out where you stood with these certain things. And so I remember asking you, um, like, what did you think about it? Because with my understanding, um, just like on what I knew about you, I had, it was a very high chance that (laughs) you, you didn't enjoy watching that. Um, So kind of going like, I want to hone in on a point that you made is that you didn't see, obviously he was doing it for a reason, 
And he was doing it in to, I guess, to draw attention to an issue, an issue that a lot of people don't see as an issue. But, you know, that's not what we're trying to debate here. But the point was that he was in some way or another, he was standing up for the sanctity of human life. And you felt like that was disrespectful because of the sanctity of human life in the people who have given up their lives for the country, like in service of the country. Mm-hmm. And I just think like, I've never, I never thought about that being the, like the response or the reason why people were so upset. And it wasn't up until later, um, not later after we had that conversation, but later after that actual event happened that I I remember reading somewhere where Colin Kaepernick actually went to somebody, went to uh, like a veteran and asked him like, hey, I have this inclination to, to do something about this. How can I, like he asked this veteran, what is the best way or the most respectful way, so to speak, um, to protest, like to protest the national anthem or whatever. And apparently this guy said like, it, it, like, I think Colin Kaepernick asked him like, would it be disrespectful if I knelt during the, the national anthem? And this guy essentially gave him the green light, this veteran. I think he was like a, like he was a veteran and he uh, played professional football. I don't know, but um, I read somewhere that he got the green light from a vet and that was new to me. So um, kind of going back to the reason why I asked you, the reason why I asked because the reason why I asked was because I, I like to ask questions mm-hmm. and I wanted to really get to know you. And I always ask some of the toughest questions early on. Yeah, you do. Uh, because I want to, I want to, un, I want to get past the, especially with someone who I really care about and really care to know deeper about. Um, I like to figure out what is important to you because in a sense like when when people get married like those things are at the forefront of everyone of like everyone in the household's mind what is what is our goal what is our importance like what's of utmost importance and so the reason why I asked was because back when I was in FCA like in college we used to meet our meeting times during the week were Monday Monday's at seven. And so we obviously had, you know, football at this time was usually on Sunday. Um, So Monday was going to be the following day, obviously. And after that Sunday that where he knelt during the national anthem, we ended up talking about it in FCA. And our director at the time decided to have essentially have an open conversation about what happened and what I guess the Christian response should be. Like, how should we address these types of events? And so um, the director at the time, like just posed the question, like, what did you guys think about it? And 
there there wasn't a lot of people in the room because you know the at that point FCA wasn't huge. Um, but right away, some of the some of the people in there were raising their hands and saying things like, "Like it was absolutely despicable. How dare he? Like what right does he have? Him and his privilege, like playing professional football, has the audacity to." you know, disrespect the flag like that. It's so sickening. Like these were believers talking in this way. And I didn't, I was like, oh no, this is, this. (laughs) And frankly, I have a history of when things like this come up in classrooms that I usually tend to be the devil's advocate, you know, ironically speaking. Um, But I I like to challenge people, especially if, they they're so direct and bold to say things like that not just in general but toward like about another human being and so i was sitting in the very back row and i was like oh yeah this 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 is going to happen today <laughs> um and so i just i was so confused at Mind you, get, let me give you some some uh, background information. So it wasn't it wasn't too long before that FCA meeting where I saw a Netflix documentary called Thirteenth, and it was basically, I mean, I don't I saw it a long time ago, but it basically um, followed the history of um, mass incarceration of of African Americans like throughout history. So it walks us through the history of like slavery and then uh, the Jim Crow laws, mass incarceration, like all those things. Basically, it talks about the 13th Amendment um, and just talks about how African Americans have been in basically a, a type of modern slavery with the jail system um, and Jim Crow laws and things like that. And so I already had this mindset of, um, of almost defending, um, for lack of a better phrase, uh, racist tendencies. I was like very quick to be like, wait, hold on. And I, I wanted to ask questions. And so my concern with how these professing believers responded stemmed from like, wait, hold on. Aren't we, why aren't we asking the question first, why did he kneel? Because to a lot of people, that was the heart issue. That a lot of people saw that as a necessary action. And so I was so shocked that not only not only that we were discussing this, it was like, no, we're, we're FCA, we're Fellowship of Christian Athletes. We're supposed to be figuring out how to be um, Christ-like in our particular environment. And so obviously that goes hand in hand with the sports world and, you know, just moral issues. But specifically with what happened here, I was so confused as to why we were discussing this in the first place and why we weren't approaching it in a, in a more 
I guess, humane level. And that was starting with the question, why did he kneel? Because I think that question needs to be answered before we can talk about any disrespect happening. Because apparently to him and a lot of people of of a lot of communities saw that as a necessary action because of other disrespect that has been going on in the rest of the country. And so um, can you, I want to bring it back to you, um, what exactly happened in your viewing of that? So like you said, like you said, like you just mentioned, like, I have challenged you in many ways. Our friend Lauren has challenged you in many ways. Um, What changed? Like what, I guess what I'm trying to ask is explain what was your mindset? Like not what changed specifically, but how did you think about that? And then, and then kind of go into, um, how your perspective changed. Uh, I definitely was taught that we were um, a Christian nation, you know, founded on biblical principles by a bunch of incredible Christians. Like, (laughs) I think I was picturing like a Bible study getting together and like making a declaration. (laughs) It's a little bit of a... um, exaggeration but yeah I just had this idea that all these like very amiable like Christian guys came over and like started the country so then when I would hear that like George Washington had slaves it was the opposite of of what I had been taught as true so almost kind of just dismissed or didn't like believe it or didn't want to believe it or wanted to be like, oh, I'm sure there's like some, there has to be some explanation <laughs> somewhere. Um, so there's that view of our nation. And um, I've shared um, a lot of interest in recent history, like U.S. history with my dad, just airplanes and B-29 bombers and you know, just seeing the movies, like Pearl Harbor, and I'm a very, like, patriotic type person where I get all, like, I get all in the feels with the national anthem and the 4th of July and just everything and all the hype and emotion and excitement behind the United States of America. So, and also being taught how the flag is so respected and it should never be, you know, it has to be handled a certain way, a very like particular list of ways you're supposed to handle it. You're not even supposed to wear it, Mm -hmm. which, you know, it's all over shirts and that's accepted as being very patriotic, but there is just this list of all of that. And then football being a very American sport almost Christian you know your pastors mention it in the pulpit like oh you're going home to like watch football and Mm -hmm. you know that whole thing uh so I just immediately went into defense mode of I guess what I like 
saw as like right, standing for what is right. And I was quite literally blinded, like to see outside of that box, even though I've never considered myself racist at all. I just thought this guy is being so disrespectful. And I think a lot of other people said this, like, oh, there was a a much more respectful way he could have made the same point. Mm -hmm. But it definitely got people's attention and um, just conversations with you and Lauren and also listening to a podcast called Southside Rabbi. They have a great episode. Um, I'm not sure if it was completely about this. I've listened to so many that I don't remember if there was one specific one about this, but it kind of opened my eyes of like, you should be bringing this back to the Bible and God's word and Christians are called to love and preserve life and be peacemakers. And it was just this thought for the first time of seeing, trying to see from this other person, like Colin Kaepernick's point of view, he's trying to make a stand for like what he believes is right, which is, you know, the sanctity mm-hmm. of human life. Um, but like, you know, a lot of people don't agree with the way he did it because I think maybe, just maybe they were brought up similarly to me. Um, and it, I just will bring it back to the Bible and God's word, just like basically (laughs) WWJD, like what would Jesus do? I think he was always flipping tables, uh, figuratively on the way that people thought. And, you know, he would probably be condemning Republicans and liberals for, for all the ways that we see things. And yeah, just basically thinking outside of the box and putting on the Christian lens of rose colored glasses Mm -hmm. and not the American ones, I guess. Yeah. The ones shaped like stars. Yeah, I was, I was literally <laughs> just thinking of yeah. the ones on the Fourth of July. Yeah. <laughs> no, it's it's interesting um, that you mentioned, like Jesus, like those actions that we see uh, recorded in the Bible of Jesus rebuking people, flipping tables, and just having this very harsh language. And I think it 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 gives us a picture on who he was targeting when he was when he said those very harsh statements and if we think back on who that was targeting it was it was the self-righteous it were the it was the people who thought that they had it all together and were condemning others because they didn't have it all together so in a sense jesus would have his his intent was to shine light on and shame. And I, I will say that with much conviction. He's, he does it to shame those who are self-righteous. Who say like, he sh- who, who would say this. And the self-righteous are those who would say like, he, he could have done it in, in a different way. 
he shouldn't have disrespected that way. How dare you? Like, if I was in this place, I wouldn't have done it that way. Like, those are the self-righteous people, prideful and arrogant, that Jesus would have rebuked because of their self-righteousness. And I, yeah, I just thought it was very key that you mentioned that because um, we see that in the Bible. We see Jesus rebuking and being very harsh to the self-righteous. Yes, he was the literal, literal epitome of love, of our perfect example of it, our perfect model of it, um, in which we, through which we imitate or at least strive to imitate. But even even at that point, um, I feel like we don't really talk about much about who he was targeting this harsh language to. Like we see him heal the sick. We see him be kind and loving to the foreigner and all these different beautiful things that even people who don't even, who don't even believe in Jesus um, feel inclined to honor. And then I feel like we only use those illustrations or those instances where he is harsh, referring to like very masculine, like strong man type of behavior. Where in reality, he was targeting the self-righteous. It wasn't that he was uh, displaying this macho man type of bravado as the strong man of America. You know, this picture of Jesus with big, big biceps, you know, like it was more so if you were prideful and arrogant and you were stealing from the poor and devouring widows households, you were going to you were you better watch out because Jesus is coming around giving out rebukes for breakfast like that was his his intent with those specific types of people because the because the bible says that he didn't come to condemn he came to save so what does he do with those people he basically reveals to them their true character and rebukes them all right that leads us to our next topic not necessarily a topic but more so a person so our last president was interesting to say the very least and i feel like a lot of our idolatry really came to the surface not you know not necessarily just our as in yours and mine but citizens of the u.s whether they find their themselves on the left or right politically but also a lot of people in the church we you know, uh, Donald Trump served as almost a litmus test for people in the church. Like he, I feel like with his inauguration as president, it introduced so many things and it also revealed a lot of things, more so the idolatry of self and the preservation of self because people propped him up to be this game changer, this anything and everything I say goes, and I'm going to be 
uh, a mover that this, that I'm going to make decisions. And um, a lot of people saw the who he was up against, um, Hillary, Clinton, Hillary Clinton, if I'm not mistaken, and saw like, oh, Hillary Clinton is, you know, I heard a bunch of things that she was a woman, that, you know, her femininity was going to get in the way of her making decisions. And it was literally the polar opposite in Donald Trump. Like he was the macho man business dude who was going to get things done and our, and our, and our economy was going to flourish. And even though I'll go as far as to say some of that, you know, happened where, you know, the economy was doing well. Um, but people saw that benefit from his presidency and ran with it and ran with it, bypassing all of the social issues and had their eyes cleanly set on the prosperity and the greatness of America. And just in order to get to that, what, what I, you know, so promised land, so to speak, of America being great, they had to run over a lot of people, you know, either figuratively speaking or literally speaking, as we saw, you know, in Charlottesville. And so with that being said, I wanted, you know, I'll let you get your two cents in, but I wanted to talk about something specifically about what happened in Charlottesville. And so um, there was a press conference. I don't know a lot of details about this, but apparently there was a press conference after that. And um, I don't really know the specifics about what was said at this press conference, but um, the media ran with something that something specific that Donald Trump said. And it was something along the lines of, uh, of very fine people. Meaning, and you know, the media ran with him referring to the neo Nazis and the white supremacists in Charlottesville uh, when there was a um, I, I, oh, man, I probably should have prepared for this better, but um, there was either a response to statues wanting like wanting to be taken down or to be left up. Um, I, I forgot why there were these protests in Charlottesville, but. Um, that's besides the point, they, the media ran with this comment, this supposed comment that white supremacists were very fine people. And so that put Donald Trump in the crosshairs of a lot of people claiming that he was the, the head guy, the main man of a lot of white supremacy and so on and so forth. And so um, I actually went back and read the transcript of that entire press conference. And so what he actually said was that there were fine people on both sides. There were fine people who were trying, who were intending to keep the, 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 whatever, sta- I think it was Robert E. Lee statue, um, which is a whole nother conversation, but uh, there were very fine people who were just protesting peacefully, who wanted to keep it up. And then there were very fine people who wanted to wanted it to come down because of what Robert E. Lee represented or whoever it was. 
I'm not too sure why there were these uh, protests, but that's essentially the the true factual, like you can go back and read about this, um, that he, that's what he said. That's what the very fine people comment um, was aimed at. It was both sides. And he also like clearly condemns the white supremacists who were causing damage and just wreaking havoc. You can go back and read it. You know, don't take my word for it. I'm not trying to defend the guy, but as Christians, we should observe and investigate truth. Like that's essentially what we hold to, not the truth that he uh, of Donald Trump's transcript, but the truth of the of the Bible. And so, as Christians, we should want to investigate and seek what really happened, especially if people are being slandered by it or from it. And so all that to say what I'm when I what I'm leading all that into communicating is that there was one night before we were married, uh, when I was still living with my parents, like there was one night where I came home from school and I saw my dad watching the news. And it was I walked in at the perfect time where once again even after this transcript was released, a news, I don't remember what specific news channel it was, but they were condemning Donald Trump again for his very fine people comment. And I actually, I actually respond. I said to my dad, I'm like, dude, that, that was literally like, he's not a racist. Um, I'm, some of you may just be boiling at this point that I'm even, you know, having an ounce of defense for this guy. But um, he was like, dude, he he didn't say that. And so me and my dad, my dad didn't believe me. And I was like, dad, look, like I can show you the transcript right now. And he didn't want to see it. And I just got so frustrated that I said something like, like, um, ah, man, I don't remember what I said, but I like almost rebuked him for it. He's like, how could you, how could you slander somebody where, where that's not even true? Like he didn't say those things. He said those things, but they weren't in the context that you think they, that he addressed like, mm -hmm. it, it wasn't the way that he, that the media is portraying basically. And we got into like this few second argument and I was furious. And so I, got out of my my school clothes and I you know I went to go on a run because I was fuming and after I got out some energy I started walking and I started praying and I actually started crying I was like how in the world could I show so much passion and so much energy towards something that wasn't the gospel mm with my dad, with my dad of all people, someone who have, you know, I say, say this admittedly, like I haven't really explicitly sat him down and shared the gospel with him about the good news of, that Jesus, the only begotten son of God came down to earth to live a perfect life and to die a death that we all deserved, lived a life that we never could on our behalf so that now our faith in him, we may have eternal life and never perish. I had never sat him down to explain the gospel to him. 
and to call him to repentance and to believe in that beautiful truth of the gospel. And so with that in mind, I had just showed a significant amount of energy towards something that wasn't biblical truth. The good news that Jesus Christ came to save and to seek that which is seek that which was lost. And I was heavy-hearted to say the least. And at that point, at that point, honey, was when I had to change. Hmm. That was my switch. Because um admittedly, I was like, I I actually would go on the White House website throughout Trump's presidency and look at some of the stuff that he that he had accomplished and some of the, the laws that he had passed. And I was like, dang, that's actually pretty cool. Why isn't this being talked about more? Um, and honestly, like I did that for the purpose of rebuking people who were so slanderous towards him. Like, like I said, um, I have this tendency of wanting to be devil's advocate. And all I saw was misogynistic, racist, you know, all these other different nasty names that they were calling him, which may be true. We don't know. I mean, we know some, we know his actions are very, you know, um, could be very detrimental, especially um, in Christian circles. Like, Mm -hmm. we'll get to that here in a bit. But I was so I was done. I saw my mentality changing and I just had to pray and give it up to God. I unfollowed all of the unhelpful political uh, voices. So like, for example, Candace Owens, Ben Shapiro, like Jordan Peterson, like all these guys, all these people who I got to the point where I was like, how could I get any advice from these people if they don't know God? These aren't Christian voices who have the heart of Jesus at the very center and their foundation of everything that they say. So how could I possibly receive any advice or political commentary from any of them? I'm not saying that, you know, they're bad people or anything like that, but If I'm seeking to live a life that is Christ-centered with a spirit of humility and an attitude of peace and love and self-control, they're the last people I should go to. And so um, I don't know why I wanted to talk about that, but um, what in, in the past few years, past several years, what has been your experience with these types of conversations. Well, something that uh, just kind of popped into my head when you were just talking is um, you asked some of the youth kids today, like, you know, Christians are known for like what they're against, probably more so than what they're for. And I just thought of, like, if you made a list of what Christians are for, 
sadly, I think some people would put Trump on that list. Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, I, you know, had this immediate, like, defense mechanism that pops up, like, at any mention of Trump, um, because I was all for the his new um, way of business and doing things. And, you know, he was definitely the lesser of two evils, in my opinion. I knew that he wasn't a perfect guy. And obviously that came out a little bit more in his presidency. Um, but I, I just... I've never gotten too political with people because it kind of scares me because I don't really, I'm not very quick with responses and reasons. Like I know the reasons I believe certain things or vote for certain people, um, but they're like not at the forefront of my mind because I get all like nervous, you know, Mm -hmm. whenever it comes up. So I just kind of try to avoid it. Um, and I found a couple instances at work, you know, where I would kind of just try to ask other people questions, but kind of in defense of Trump, like, well, like, what has he done that's like so wrong? And, uh, you know, just stuff like that. Um, and the whole time, again, I was like blinded or like choosing not to address, um, some pretty big, like sin issues and we're all sinners, but he definitely probably has a lot of pride and a quick tongue and, you know, just a lot of things everyone knows. And I was just choosing not to acknowledge those things because of, you know, other things that I thought he was doing decently better than someone else would. Um, And then, you know, talking with you and other people, it just kind of made me think like, yeah, why would you spend your time like trying to convince someone that he was worthy of their vote mm-hmm. or, you know, that he did something good when people like people's blood boil with this guy. So like, why would you risk, um, I guess your testimony um, and all this stuff on this guy. And also like, you know, it may just be definitely different convictions on different believers, but if you really look at what type of person and morals this guy is, like, can you bring yourself to vote for him without, like, a certain level of conviction? You know, what what is okay to sweep to the side? Mm. Yeah. No, that's good. That I'm glad you mentioned that because it reminds me of something that um, KB and Amin um, mentioned in their podcast, Southside Rabbi, um, where in their Christian nationalism episode, or even the episode where they mention a, where they talk about uh, the other podcast, um, the fall of the rise and fall of Mars Hill, they talk about this Christian tendency in the church to lift up certain people because of their um because of their abilities rather than their character. Mm. So we we put 
whether they're pastors or political leaders, on this pedestal because of their abilities. Whether, like so not Christian. Yeah, not <laughs> Christian at all. Where we where we see that they are a charismatic or very charismatic, very witty with their words, are great speakers, um, have wonderful uh just they're just incredibly gifted in how they communicate things, in their ability, in their charisma, and all these things. But we but we put their character in the backseat. Mm. We don't even consider that until later. And then when these when these pastors or when these when these political leaders fall, we tend to um, defend them because of what they accomplished while they were in that specific place. And as we see in Paul's epistles, a lot of what a lot of the qualifications of a leader in the church and and for pastors the majority of the qualifications are character are 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 things about your character yeah it's almost like we have adopted the mentality of the ends justify the means which mm-hmm. you know the bible is um pretty anti that but mm-hmm. it's just interesting how like what you pointed out that it's seeped into churches and not just with uh many churches support or promotion of trump um but also with promotion of i guess toxic masculinity mm-hmm. yeah that is definitely a problem that we have to work constantly at fighting because to put it plain plainly and simply that's not the way of Jesus oftentimes when we speak of the what a man should look like we look to the very like what i mentioned earlier about some of the harsh actions that Jesus did we look to those actions we look to him flipping tables. We hip. We look to him rebuking uh, the self-righteous people very harshly. And then we even go to the book of Revelation where he's coming back um, on a white horse and he's coming uh, uh, to make war and, you know, his robe is dripped in the blood of his enemies. Like, And we put up this very masculine picture of Jesus when in reality... That's going to be his glorified state. He came down to earth to live. He lived almost, I mean, he lived to the age of 33-ish. We see his life and we only take out, we only glean from his life the instances where he was very direct and very sharp to the self-righteous people. And we don't look to the times where he weeps over the death of his friend, Lazarus, Lazarus, where he weeps and he, and he cries out in the garden of Gethsemane the night before he's crucified, where he pleads for the father to remove this cup, crying like drops of blood, like those, those moments where he he kneels down and washes the disciples' feet. We very often 
go to those passages to to glean wisdom and ways to reflect the the actual mind and person of Jesus. I think we just have it so backwards. And I guess the reason, so what does this have to do with idolatry? This goes to, goes back to the original definition that I, that or the several definitions that I gave on what idolatry means. And, it, and one of them was we treat other people based off of a false presumption of who God is. And so if we think God is this specific way, that he is for our country, that it's not for God and country, but like KB says, he, it's God country, that our success as a nation is directly tied to our Christian witness. And in a sense, that may be true, but that for that to be supreme in our minds is a form of idolatry. So this leads us to the last thing I kind of want to hash out, and that is the whole um, like lockdown vaccine and uh, mask situation. And so early on, obviously, we didn't know how severe this uh, virus was. I mean, obviously, it was ravaging a bunch of people. And um, here, you know, stateside, we didn't really know how to handle it, especially in the church. We are commanded to gather in, in, you know, in the Bible very explicitly that we are not to forsake the gathering um, and, you know, gather all the more as the day approaches, as Hebrews tells us. I'm pretty sure it's Hebrews. But um, church is very, um, very necessary for the people of God to flourish. And so with the potential or with the reality of lockdowns, um, a lot of churches went to doing online services. And, you know, rightfully so. You know, we didn't know how severe this thing was. And I mean, I've never experienced that type of lockdown. Like that was obviously new for a lot of us. But um, when the, the, the question began getting very gray, very blurry, um, when local county state mandates were switching back and forth and so pastors were didn't really know what to do this was also new to them they didn't know whether to limit their their congregation which in itself is kind of uh sketchy like it's kind of like how do you who do you do you just have are you just like a club you have a bouncer at at the front door and you're like, all right, we reached, you know, 50 people. No one else is left to worship. Like you can't come into worship with your people to worship God. Like that brings up a lot of problems, a lot of questions that a lot of pastors don't have experience, you know, navigating through. And so there's that grace that people have to walk in. Um, But when things started changing, like this is before, you know, vaccines started becoming available 
is the mask issue. I remember um, one of our friends asking us, like, shouldn't shouldn't our church be loving to its community members, whether they were at risk or not? Shouldn't we be forcing masks anyway? And um, I don't remember how, how I responded, but I wish I would have, res- if I could respond to that question now, I would respond with, pastors have an incredible um, weight on them right now. They don't know how to handle this. They don't, but they they understand the command and the the incredible, um, like how essential gathering weekly is. We see that in the Bible, all, like all throughout the New Testament, is the importance of gathering together, partaking in the Lord's Supper, baptizing believers, so on and so forth. And so, if I could respond to that. Now, I would say each pastor is responsible for his own gathering, for his own church. How he responds to that is like you as a person, you as a believer, you as whether you're a member of this believing community or not, you have to have grace. You have to be patient. Yes, you may have a different outlook on things. Yes, you may have further evidence that proves that, hey, you probably should be should be mandating masks. And a lot of churches were. They separated chairs, they distanced, you know, themselves, they would wear masks and mandate masks throughout worship services and all this other all these other things that were implemented by churches in order to fulfill the commandment to gather and to try to do it faithfully um but i think it was very where we fell short as a church body is when we started dividing over these issues where we started looking at pastors self-righteously and saying you're not being loving I will go as far as to say that because the reason why I say that so, I guess, directly is because in 1 Corinthians chapter 13, we see what love is in the context, in the context of a rebuke. So Paul is correcting the Corinthian church for them not being loving and them not exhibiting their gifts in a loving way. And so sandwiched in between two chapters where he talks about gifts is this grand chapter and description of what love is, where he says love is patient, love is kind, it does not envy or boast, it is not selfish, like all of these beautiful things, what love is and isn't. And when you go as, as far as to say that a church is not being loving because they're responding to a pandemic, in a way that you wouldn't have responded and it gives you the inclination to leave that church are you you being loving are you being patient are you being kind are you taking the time to have conversations with these pastors and give them your thoughts and say hey pastor or pastors 
I don't particularly think this is a good idea. Here's why. And then you go from there. But if you just saw the response of the church, of the of whatever specific church you didn't like, and you had this self-righteous attitude that you think are no better without an ounce of wanting to figure out what led them to their conclusions as to how they are to proceed like through worship services, then I think you faulted. I think you failed. And I'm not saying that to condemn because we, I mean, you and I had, I was like, wow, they're not wearing masks. They're hugging. Like what we were confused too. Should we keep our masks on when we're near them? Like, what are we to do? But the beautiful thing about it is this is kind of where I want to, I guess, land the plane on this whole conversation is that as believers, we must start at our Christianity. We must start at what Jesus teaches us about godly character. And what Paul, the Apostle Paul, and what John, and what Peter, and what, uh, you know, what they teach us about godly character. We have to start with Christianity. We need to get that right, what that looks like, and then go into the public square. And then go into our communities. We can't cling to this political ideology or to a specific party or specific political values and read those things and read those views into the Bible in order to find guiding principles. We need to start, we need to get our doctrine, our Christianity right first. And then we can go and contribute to society because now we have a good foundation. Now, when things happen, we're able to respond as Jesus would respond. Like you said earlier, what would Jesus, like what you said earlier, what would Jesus do? We see this in literally black and white, or in our case, you know, in red letters, and on the Sermon on the, on the Mount. That is where we get our, our, our Christian character our Christ-like character. And then we read the rest of the New Testament and we see it there too. We are slow to speak. We are quick to listen. We place others above ourselves. We hold other people more importantly than ourselves in the spirit of humility. And I, I guess I would ask the question to anyone listening whether you're a believer or not, or I guess it would apply to believers, what type of gospel message does your life preach? Are you the type of person who questions any and all decisions that your local church makes and then condemn them for making those decisions with the assumption that you're, you can make them better? That is idolatry. Whether you place your preferences above everyone else's or you idolize your political party 
and read those into the local church's mission, that's idolatry too. And we saw that clear as day the last few years. I mean, it's been an issue for a long time, but I think it finally clicked. I mean, I mean, I don't know about you, but it, it finally clicked for me of this idolatry. And it creeped into our churches and I, I, I'm pretty, pretty sad about it, honestly, because I love the church. I love the local gathering. I love when people come together and worship the true living God, the true and living God. And anyway, that's, that's what I got. (laughs) Um, So do you have anything to add? No. All right. So for any of the believers, I know I didn't address a lot. I know that this is a longer than usual podcast episode, but you may have a ton of questions. And if you do, that's okay. That's fine. Here's here's my my encouragement or I guess a warning. If you feel the need to judge someone's decision on who they voted for, on what type of political view they lean towards, lean more towards, if you have the tendency, here's here's the issue. Here's my, my main issue with all of this that is grounded on the, the avoidance of idolatry, is that if you have the audacity to say someone is less or more spiritual because of who they vote for, you're in error and you need to repent. If you are a Republican or if you are of a or if you if you are a a more of a right-leaning conservative and you say that people who voted blue, so to speak, or Democrat, and you say that they're less spiritual, and you have the audacity to say, how dare they, you know, um, vote for the baby killers. Like, if you have the audacity to say that, you're in error, and you need to repent. Likewise, if you're, if you lean more left, with more progressive ideologies, and you have the inclination to look at your more conservative brother or sister and say, how could you vote for the arrogant, misogynistic pig? Dang, man, that was pretty harsh. <laughs> hopefully my, hopefully the episode doesn't get taken down. Um, if you, if you have the, like, how could you? He's such an ungodly character. How could you call, call yourself a Christian and vote for him? then you're an error too. And you should repent. Because our spirituality, our Christianity, is not founded on who we vote for. Now, that may ask the question, well, what should we do then, Chris, when our pastors are exhorting us to vote biblically? What does that mean? And to be honest, 
as I look, as I'm looking my wife in the eyes, I will say, I don't know. I don't, I don't know what that means, but guess what? I am free in Christ. We are free in Christ. So you believer, you non-believer, if you have the conviction to vote a certain way, you have the freedom to do that. You also have the freedom to wear a mask wherever and whenever you want. You also have the freedom to get the vaccine however many times you want. You have that freedom. But when it gets to the point where you are putting your convictions on other people, I'm sorry, but you are self-righteous and you need to repent. In the name of love, if you are doing that, in the name of love, I would please, I would ask you to consider 1 Corinthians chapter 13. Are you being patient? Are you being kind? Are you being loving? Are you being envious? The question is not political involvement. We're not questioning that. And we're not quite, we're not asking you to completely divorce yourselves from any uh, right that you, that people have fought for in this country. We're not arguing, we're not having this conversation to argue against political involvement. What we are asking you to be aware of is this false idea that Christians should seek political supremacy in the US. Not so much involvement, because that, you know, if you have that conviction to to be involved in local, state, federal government, by all means, that's fantastic. But if you seek supremacy as a Christian, that's not that's not our goal. That's not the church's mission. Since when in any case, did our calling and mission to live as Christians and to bear witness to the truth of the gospel by words and deeds that faithfully live out our loyalty to Jesus, since when does that depend on favorable state authorities or for legal and political circumstances? That was certainly not the way it was for the New Testament churches under the Roman Empire. And certainly that is not the case for the vast majority of the world's Christians today. We are to lift up the cross precisely in this world of evil, folly, idolatry, and confusion. For it was in such a world and for such a world that Jesus died and rose again and calls us to follow him. So I'll finish with um, this quote by Polycarp of Smyrna, of Smyrna, where he says, Let us therefore forsake the vanity of the crowd and their false teachings and turn back to the word delivered to us from the beginning. Thank you so much for listening and bearing with us as we open up the conversation to these very difficult issues 
Um, I'm thankful um, and would appreciate any feedback. If you have any questions, if you have any um, disagreements, please reach out. I would be highly encouraged if you did so, because what we did, what we intended to do here was to open up the conversation and open open up opportunity for dialogue. And so if you're fortunate enough to be doing life with someone else and find value in this episode, please share it with them and open up the conversation with them. Um, if you don't know Jesus, I would ask and essentially plead that you would come to know him, that you would trust in his finished work on the cross. And to have faith that will save. That God will use through his grace, by his grace, to bring you to new life, to new life in Christ. But like we've mentioned in this episode, that's not easy. Because we got to navigate through a lot of these issues. But we are not left to our own devices. We have a savior. We have a king who is constantly interceding for us while we try to navigate through this life. So, don't knock it. Don't knock until you know. Don't knock until you try it. Peace.